I want to be number one in the world at building trust with students as quickly as possible. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broadmic. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Today we have Kelly Peeler in the Broadmic studio. Kelly is the founder and CEO of NextGenVest.com, a free text message service to help students navigate the financial aid and student loan process via key financial aid deadline reminders, form annotations, and on-demand help over text message to get more financial aid in high school and beyond. I'm going to talk to her about the development of NextGenVest, designing a user-to-user platform, and reaching millennials. Welcome, Kelly. Hi. So what influenced you to become an entrepreneur? I'm going to start there before diving into next-gen <laughs> fast back. <laughs> but dial it back. What, why, when did you know you were, you were you know, entrepreneurially inclined? Um, I guess I, I, it started probably when I was 11. Um, I've always been that super aggressive salesman uh, starting when I was 11, uh, whether it be a lemonade stand um, or uh, I actually started with furniture. So my first company, though I didn't know at the time, um, I used to get furniture out of the garbage, refurbish it because I used to watch a lot of Martha Stewart and then um, sell it um, at probably like a 300% margin. So um, that's how I kind of got my spending money and also worked to pay my way through the high school that I went to and parts of college. Did you ever sell furniture back to the person who'd thrown it out? Yes, I had, actually. Yes. Um, and that was awkward <laughs> because I was, like, super sleuthy about it, too. I would go to people's houses. I mean, they put it out in the garbage. So I wasn't stealing it or anything. But, um, no, I would, I would like, grout it and put a mirror, make it look, like, really antique um, And... People would pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. I, you know, that just that just came to mind. <laughs> so this is so being an entrepreneur was, as you said, this is what got you through college. So what's the origin of the story for Next Gen Vest? Yeah, sure. So it it sort of is a combination of both of my very different but personal passions. One, um, so I didn't stop when I was 11. I started a company in college um, and then also a nonprofit. And I've always been super passionate about empowering young people to live to their fullest potential. Um, so that's on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, I'm a huge nerd and really obsessed with uh, the history of financial crises. Um, I studied that as an undergraduate and um, really kind of dug deep into the student loan market um, at my senior year of college and then also uh, my two, two and a half years at J.P. Morgan. Um, and in my opinion, the biggest thing holding students back from living their fullest lives are student loan burdens, which um, is really what Next Invest is, is centered around, um, is helping students redesign how they engage with money from the beginning before they've made um, their biggest financial mistake, which is generally around taking out way too many student loans and not understanding what that will mean for their future lives. I want to talk about all of that. Just before we get into that, though, what were the risks for you in terms of 
starting um, starting businesses in college and, and even more particularly starting this business because there's a lot of established companies who like the student loan mess as it is. Yeah, so I would say um, I had a lot of, I mean, it's great to, and I would hugely, and I talk to college students all the time, um, it's a really great idea to start kind of, uh, start the process of thinking about if you're entrepreneurial and you would consider yourself starting a company, like, why not in college? There's a safety net there. You generally will have food. Um, You'll probably have housing. And there's less downside risk um, to starting then and at least just exploring. So maybe it turns out that you're not really an entrepreneur. You're not a founder. Cool. You know that and you can move forward and you can optimize to your strengths. Maybe you're a great CFO. Maybe you're a great VP of engineering, like whatever. Um, I just think it's a great time to experiment with those things. And I was lucky enough to be in a great environment as an undergrad to be surrounded with those people. Um, I, uh, That being said, I couldn't continue with um, one of the organizations that I was part of like our founding team with because I needed to like make a living for myself. So that sort of drove me into JP Morgan, um, where I sort of thought to myself, hmm, I'm interested in financial institutions. I'm really interested in financial crises right after the financial crisis. So I'm I'm really interested in the topic matter and the firm. But then more importantly, I really need to make a lot of money as quickly as possible so I can try to start my next company um, thereafter. So I saved like pretty much every penny. Um, and that was really the motivation to go um, and take that step. So the risks specifically for me in college were less. Um, it gave me more time to explore. Um, one of the nonprofit that I started was in Iraq. So that was sort of like kooky and out there. Um, and I wouldn't have done that if I, you know, if I was employed at that time. Um, but uh, but personally, I, I mean, I've I came up with my own like financial plan of starting this company, and uh, it's a huge financial risk for me personally. Um, I bootstrapped it for the first year, um, and definitely made a conscious decision that I want to bet on myself. Oh, so it's, it's I always say to people, if you're not your own best investment, I do not yeah. know what is. <laughs> exactly, um, and that's amazing. Like the, the, and I think one of these things in terms of entrepreneurship, people don't realize, like, like there is an immense amount of power in a W two. Mm-hmm. There is immense amount of power um, that can come from working at a big established company like a JP Morgan, where you make contacts, you might yep. meet your first investors, or you know, you in terms of gathering all that information. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I did meet my first. Inv- I met I met my strongest mentors and my my first investors at J P Morgan. Um, so and I and I met my problem, my specific problem point there too. So uh, I was very lucky to have the experience um, to work there. What a bunch of smart people who had made really silly decisions with student <laughs> loans. Is this what you're telling me that you found when you were working on Wall Street? Well, I mean, more. I mean, I worked with a few private equity firms that were trying to short the student loan market. So that kind of like made me dig into um how does that work like how you know why why is is the uh, you know like the risk of student loans completely mispriced um why can't you actually take a direct short position on student loans um and that just got me really fascinated in my opinion this is pretty bold to say um i'm very um a huge advocate to say that the next financial crisis will be around the student loan market after studying them for the past 200 years um so that was really kind of the spark that really kind of threw it over the edge. I, I do really have to ask this, you know, my past life, and there's been many past lives, careers-wise, but, you know, when I started my legal career, I was doing a lot of bankruptcy law. And yeah. so 
these things do fascinate me as well. So maybe it's meeting an, another <laughs> Kelly who's fascinated with <laughs> who's both wearing red lipstick, <laughs> wearing red lipstick, and fascinated by financial crisis. But yeah. why on what on earth, particularly for someone who I mean. I graduated from high school, graduated from undergraduate, graduated from law school, and I can count down, you know, there's 83, 87, 91, and you're nodding because you know those were financial yep. crises. Yep. So, but that's not your experience. What on earth? What on earth <laughs> interested you in studying 200 years of financial crisis? Well, I was, I was really lucky to be um, at Harvard as an undergraduate um, during the financial crisis, the last one, and studying under two prominent financial historians, um, Neil Ferguson and Emma Rothschild. And I was just completely obsessed with them. Um, so I've always like his- liked history. Um, I always liked economics. But the history of economics really was something that I also played a role in as an undergraduate. So I was there when they merged the departments to create a history of economics and also created, this is also a bit nerdy, um, the first undergraduate um, financial crises website where we published papers. Um, so it was a lot of right timing um, that I was lucky to be around fantastically smart people. Um, and just during this huge economic crisis that was just unfolding. It was all on the nerdy factor. My, <laughs> my first trip to London, I had to go see Canary Wharf to see where the right yep. had lost their money because yep. as a Canadian, that was, that was, of course, what you do when you go to London. <laughs> well, I go to a museum. Let's see where famous Canadians have lost all, all, all their money. Um, so you're a solo founder. Yes. Now, that's usually not the recommended mm-hmm. course of action. Yep. How have you handled all of that and in... Why have you chosen to continue being a solo founder? Yeah, I mean, um, it's I, it's just kind of how things happened. And I, I'm also a big proponent of, like, I want to be number one in the world at building trust with students as quickly as possible. And I'm, I'm kind of one of, I feel like there's sort of two buckets. People who want to be number one in the world at something and people who want to work on their strengths and their weaknesses. And I'm kind of a no-holds-bar person. I want to be number one in the world at something, which means I have to be very self-aware of my own weaknesses. And so I've kind of come to the terms of I just delegate quicker. So um, part of the reason why that's able to work out is I know what my strengths are and I know and I very well know what my weaknesses are and I just delegate those um, to the rest of my team and, and surround myself with people who are substantially better at, at my weaknesses than, um, than I would be at improving them. So um, so yeah, it's been it's been a conscious decision and um, it's worked really well so far. <laughs> How big's the team now? We're four people um, and then about 20 interns, I'd say. Um, So we take a very student-focused approach um, with everything, product, uh, scaling, um, with getting word out, with thinking about next iterations. Um, So we really consider ourselves to be a community of students. So what's your core competency? My core competency is really, um, I would boil it down to empathy and um, being hopefully as well, the best in the world at listening to our demo, which is uh, like 16 to 23, 24. Um, and I say that because that's really where I see a huge, huge trust void um, and a huge wide opening for financial financial services companies um, where people just are not listening 
and they're not empathetic enough to the life of a 17-year-old girl or the life of a 20-year-old guy. Um, they don't know how they're talking to each other. They're not building product around that. And um, it's not to say that it's it's not something people are not fighting over. It's a hugely valuable group of people. Um, but really, it's I would say that we're really great at listening to students. So you you said it. You said you know product um, and and that's so key in terms of reaching any audience. Mm-hmm. But I think particularly with millennials who are, you know, they've grown up in a completely different different world, and yep. you're using text message, whatever. But what role of and uh, knowledge of product development? What did that play in your success so far? I mean, we. We went to so the way that I think about product is how can I create instances faster than anyone else to get to the right answer? So I would never presume that I would have the right product idea because I just think that's a very arrogant perspective to have. I'm never the smartest person in the room, but we create, I mean, we have weekly product sessions where we bring in every Friday. 20 different high school kids and have them critique every single thing that we're doing. And that's what I mean about listening. Yeah. But yeah, but but I mean that's that's oh, our yeah. approach which is they know better than we do. Um and I you know that just comes down to listening. I'm I'm not a 17-year-old kid, so I just have to be hmm. really good and really quick about observing what they want. Right. Where are you finding these these students and these user groups? And, and t- <laughs> tell me more about that. I find that's fascinating. Um, sure. So that's that's kind of I would say uh, like our secret sauce a little bit is we well, don't give it all away, yeah. but just kind of on the outside. <laughs> um, we um, uh, and through different organizations like the nonprofit that I mentioned um, that's based in Iraq. I've always been really fascinated and, and really honed the ability to identify advocates. Um, within a community, and then catalyze them, and then motivate them to continue to build out a community for you. Um, so we essentially have student advocates, um, whether they're setting up Next Us clubs in their schools um, or chapters in their colleges, um, but students originally sold our education product into high schools for us. Um, so it wasn't me like going around to all the different schools that we're in. It was students saying like, hey, we align with this mission and we believe that all students should have this type of information and they would go bring it to the decision maker within their school. The The cool thing now is that that's over text message that's transferring into referral, student-to-student referrals, um, which is growing really quickly for us. So how did those first students find you? Or how did you how did you find them? Yeah, so I... Like, what was the first product? Literally the first, thing, literally the first way that I found student advocates was I hosted a conference. And I made it about... Um, I brought together the type of student that I knew would be a great advocate for us and messaged it directly to something that would be interesting for them. So I had all these people in one room and then really sold them on the mission of what we were trying to do um, and gave them really concrete steps of how to bring it and spread it and be a part of the growth of what we want to build. Because, I mean, I'm assuming for so many of these students, there's this sort of excitement of graduation and going off to college, but also this sort of looming rock that's going to be over their head. Yep. I I mean, it's... It's honestly terrifying. We get we get super personal, very anxious um, text messages from students where this is you know like they they're the only person in their house. Ha- and by the way, now over seventy percent of our user base is on lower income. So these are students who are dealing with these huge 
momentous decisions by themselves generally. 20% of high schools also don't have guidance counselors in the U.S. So it's like they're by themselves. So we really are, quote unquote, their money mentor because there's kind of no one else there. <laughs> right. No one else for them to ask about. And, and whether or not they're making the right decision at this point mm-hmm. in terms of taking on student loan, financial aid, whatever it may be. Yep. And then, of course, that also has all sorts of you know, I'm saying like a domino financial effect, you know, going forward in terms of how and when they choose to to pay it off. Uh, right now, you're on Snapchat and SMS platforms. Yep. Why? Why, why those two? Attention. Attention graph of students. Um, so we, we, I mean, I, I'm a big believer um, and we'll be much more vocal about this soon, but I really believe that the time for consumer fintech is right now, namely because there is a transition between V1 of consumer fintech, which was financial organization, to V2 of fintech, which is financial efficiency. So speaking for my demo, no one wants pie charts. No one wants like where you're tracking, where you're headed. They want a set it and forget it approach, which is tell me the minimal amount of things that I need to do so and like I'll rely on your trust because I've been talking to you for a while um, and that's really where we really sit which is we're not we we like to think about saving users time then saving them money and then providing that in a reliable and efficient way so we're saving users time because we're on the communication platforms where they are we're not ta- we're not spamming them saying like, we're sending you an email, which you don't want to get, to go to our website, which you don't want to go to because your phone doesn't load fast enough. We're, we're catching them where their attention already is. Um, so it's already organically more pleasant experience for them to engage with us. Um, but really, it comes back to where attention is. So knowing that their attention is right now on Snapchat and SMS, are you already looking to the day when you're going to have to migrate off of those <laughs> platforms because yeah, you know like I you know we, I laugh about it yep. we laughed about this before people are like yep. oh the kids are on Snapchat yeah. I'm like no 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 the old farts are on Snapchat yeah. now the kids are going to be exiting that yep. really soon yeah so, the grandma effect yeah, yeah. exactly exactly <laughs> yeah I mean 100% but what we what we're really building is a is a profile for a student that they don't have to be bombarded with so we're and frankly, we're platform agnostic, but we're collecting information from a student, whether it be where they're going to college, what their concerns are, what they're interested in studying, um, what accounts they already have. But we're, we have that internally, and we're just telling students and guiding them through small nudges, not in annoying spams or, you know, like, edu- you know, like learn all this crap. It's small nudges to make their lives easier. Um, and we're really taking a long-term bet that if we can save them time through a really painful experience, hopefully get them more money, too, by negotiating their financial aid packages, then we will have built that trust with them um, for other financial decisions, too. So how does a student get started with you? If I was like, sign me up, Kelly, yeah. you know, how, yes. how, how, how do <laughs> I get started? It's, it's hopefully as easy as possible, which is um, not downloading an app, which will take anywhere from like two to 17 seconds, which is way too much time for a student. Um, they literally have to text into our hotline number, which is 646-798-1745. Um, and they just te- text in, I want help. 
And then they're immediately connected with a what we call money mentor, which is a real person. And um, they're prompted through different questions to help to really quickly figure out how we can um, help them best. What 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 is what is the real what is the real problem? Is it yeah you know the problem, but also you know are, are you junior are you senior? So we're like hyper focused. I, right. I think it's really silly how people are like millennials need help with money. It you know like customization will be the thing. I'd say if there's a fourth thing, saving time, saving money, providing a reliable, dependable service is customization is the next fourth bucket because I don't know what 18-year-old acts like a 33-year-old or what 33-year-old acts like an 18-year-old, but they certainly don't act the same way or care about the same things about money. And that's the millennial bucket. Um, So we're hyper-focused on this really small but not inconsequential moment in a person's life. And isn't that part of our frustration, too, with with you know, speaking as the as I like to say, now you've said something earlier that reminded me I am the oldest millennial. But speaking as, <laughs> but speaking as a fifty year old, it's like this is this is part of our frustration with the financial, I would say money management industry yeah. is they, yeah. they one sort of one pie chart right thing report monthly yeah. fits all, whereas you know, we're all individuals and we all have our personal anxieties around yeah. money and all of our own money concerns. Why yeah. wouldn't I want, you know, to be yeah, I treated mean, it, as a person with respect to my money. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting because I think a lot about, you know, what did trust look like in financial services when it first was created? You go, trust was an in-person meeting. You go to your local retail bank, and the reason why you were there as opposed to one that was maybe 15 miles away is because it was more convenient for you to have that your guy, like your banker, who you knew knew your stuff. And the thing is that trust is now completely changed because of the way that we communicate. So trust for our users is not an in-person meeting with like a stuffy dude in a suit because that's the last thing that they want to go do is talk to a real human. Right. <laughs> it's it's um, it's using GIFs and emojis and texting characteristics and language that builds the same trust but just in a completely different communication channel. So okay, so when I need to know where the kids are, you know, I just need to figure out what channels you're 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 texting, yeah. you're, 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 yeah. you're re- which channels you're reaching millennials, yeah. and I'll know what's like what's it like, you know, Snapchat out, I'll know based on where where you are. So has your customer base evolved in any way that has surprised you? Um, I've been we've been so lucky, and this has taken not like a long time, but um, we're I'm super proud that we are now seventy percent over. Our user base is low, like low to middle income, um, which is kind of a uh, – and now we're referring, so we're actually getting more of our user growth through student referrals than um, – what we had done before. So just as a kind of a high level, taking a step back, we started with an education platform that namely to take advantage of um, the Department of Education requirement in 17 states that requires a financial literacy course. Um, so our first interaction with students is in the classroom through education. And then the idea is layer on um, customization through communication channel, namely text message. So um, what's been cool is that just in the past month and a half, we've seen huge student referrals. So we're building that trust with the student to say, yo, dude, like this is actually really helpful. Like you should use it as opposed to coming from like a teacher or from a parent, um, which we're really proud about. Um, but kind of the tricky thing in the beginning with the education system is that low-income students have really high acquisition cost. So it's really hard to get to a student that maybe doesn't have internet in their school um, or maybe doesn't have a guidance counselor in their school who has email. <laughs> um, so the transition has been we've gone 
um, down um, in terms of income levels for our user base, which I'm really excited about. Oh, that's... Well, I would say so many startups would not be excited by that, but oh, I'm yeah, listening I mean, to you, you know, <laughs> like the, how warped and, and crazy our world is, but I'm so excited to say but, that. But I mean, like the underbanked population, like those are, that, that's like, the in terms of product and, and like gaping holes of opportunity, underbanked in the U.S. is really interesting, especially in terms of people who have the ability to have empathy to build product for them, um, which I'm super excited about. No, it's amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. And, and as soon as you said that about the um, the internet, not having internet at home or perhaps not reliable, all that kind of stuff, that the percentages and in, even in New York are, are really pathetic. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I've taken to notice this now as, you know, I'm a subway user, uh-huh. so I've taken to notice where... You get Wi-Fi in the subway, mm-hmm. and I would just say for anyone in New York, take a notice of it. This is, yep. Yep. <laughs> it's you know, it's, I hate to say it, it's the neighborhoods where the people yeah. have quality. digital divide is real. Oh, it's digital it's divide, huge. even on the subway yep. platform. Yeah, you know? yeah. Wasn't finding the dig- you know, yeah. was not finding Wi-Fi <laughs> on the subway when I was up at 116th this morning. Yeah. Um, yep. So <laughs> anyway, so you told me you bootstrapped uh, initially. Yep. And when did you say, okay? I, I, I need investors because this is bigger than I thought it was, or this is the time to get investors because now I've really got something to show them. Yeah, it was it was actually more of a of an aha moment from my my own perspective, which was I'm the past two organizations, and even since I was eleven. So um, the nonprofit that I started in college, we brought entrepreneurship programs based in Iraq. I did that on a on $1,000 our first year. I traveled to Iraq and fundraised by myself without a visa. Um, so I guess uh, that would also put me in the bucket of, like, how did I know I was an entrepreneur? because I take, like, sil- like insane risks um, but that I'm really passionate about. But, um, but I have a bootstrapping mentality, um, and I don't like... I don't like the idea of not making money, <laughs> which sounds a little bit bizarre in these times, but... Um, but I had started off by pre-selling our education platform before anything was made. I made a deck and I sold it to schools before we had anything um, just to see if they wanted it. And they did, which was great. But then I got to this kind of a little bit of conundrum of, hmm, if I really want to use, reach the user base that I want to, which are low-income students or the kids who I can really make a substantial impact on their lives, which is my own personal passion, I really need to use technology to scale impact. So um, that was really – I think I had – I listened to one of the um, the talks that you did with um, Susan Lynn, and she gave a really kind of interesting discussion around – you know, don't just raise money for like the hell of it, basically. Like think about why you want to raise money. And it really had to do with, you know, going from a smaller, medium-sized business where I could make some impact to using technology to scale impact to and also take advantage of a huge void um, in a business side, like the next generation of financial services consumers, like people need to pay attention to them. Um, and we can really use technology to do that, which is why I essentially, that, that was really the reason I took money. I want to go back to your customers for a second. Did you think that after students graduated that they'd still be coming to you? Um, absolutely. That's sort of the whole <laughs> that's sort of the whole play. Like we could um, you know, the most most and this is done in the past, most people try to hit up students right after they graduate to be like, Okay, you're independent, you're getting your apartment, you're taking on your first job, you have all these financial decisions. Now we love you. Now we love you. Yeah. And to be quite honest, it needs to start way earlier than that. Um, because 
namely just because of how people develop brand affinity. You buy your first toothpaste at set, at 13 when, and you use the same toothpaste when you're 65. People develop brand identity and affiliation really kind of in their teen years. And, um, you know, you, it's kind of a little bit, trend, you know, uh, I think um, too late in the game to be like the cool financial product when you graduate from college when people have already been like figuring this stuff out themselves. So your customer's acquisition strategy is to start talking to them when they're in yeah. school. Yes, yes. So start start talking to them in high school and guide them through their biggest financial decision, hopefully making that process suck less for them. Right. And then your real customers like once they've graduated. Yeah. Got it. Yep. We're going to get to the pay it forward okay. part. I'm ready. You ready? Yep. Okay. What are your primary sources of information? Blogs, apps, shows, podcasts? Snapchat. Snapchat. Yeah. All right. How do you discover new information? Snapchat. Did you ever think you'd be giving that answer to everything? <laughs> no. I had to study Snapchat. I wasn't a natural-born Snapchat user, but I had to study it. There we go. Uh, what book are you reading? I'm reading two books, um, Tulipomania, which is actually about the um, the financial crisis in uh in the Netherlands in the 1600s, and then also on the new um, Gary Vaynerchuk book, Ask Gary Vee. Yes, awesome. Do you have any rituals or habits you swear by as CEO? Yes. I um, write on a big, huge index card before I go to bed every night the three things that I want to accomplish the next day. Very good idea. Who are the entrepreneurs or leaders that you follow and admire? Cat Cole, um, who was previously the head of Hooters, previously the head of Cinnabon, now the head of Focus Brands. Um, she's just, like, insane. She's um, super young, really energetic, gives back, um, thinks about the alignment between um, for-profit and for-purpose, and she's just super generous with her time. Amazing. What is the best advice you've ever received? Um, I think that's probably... Uh, like be number one in the world, delegate everything else at something. Are there any particular myths that you would like to dispel for our listeners? Um, yes. So kind of going back to what we're doing is I'm a huge and kind of the, you know, like the whole theme of broad mic, which I think is fantastic is um, I really think that this discussion around the wage gap um, is needs to start earlier um, so in my mind, the modern-day wage gap um, for women really starts at the age of 18 um, with the decision to take out student loans or have a higher debt profile than men do. Um, so the AARP and um, the Institute of Women's and Politics um, put out a study that said the the percentage of annual income or debt to annual income for postgraduate women is higher across all races um, than compared to men. So that means that you're already starting out with a disadvantage because of the amount of debt that you've taken on, regardless of your income level. So, you know, we're, we're behind the eight ball, and then we're behind the eight ball again yeah, because yeah. we get paid less, right? And and you know, like, yes, yeah, so you're getting it's, it's thinking about two sides of the balance sheet. So you have everyone's kind of focused on the income level. Like, yeah, women make like seventy three cents on the dollar to every man, but oh wait, they also owe more money. So they have to pay that salary back, too, which is just kind of uh, an alarming point. So I think we need to start earlier with this whole discussion of the wage gap um, and bring it to, you know, when you start taking out loans where you can't literally default on. Yep. 
Absolutely. What words of advice would you give to listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? Um, I would say that um, I I personally put my apartment is, you know, like insane. I have <laughs> mantras all over my apartment. Um, I'm a very visual person, so I need visual reminders. I literally have paintings on my, in my apartment that say, be fearless, be kind, um, be brave, you know, like things that are just like subtle reminders to yourself. Um, but I'd also say to be very, really self-aware and put yourself in positions where you can be your best self. Um, I think a lot of women don't know their own strengths and weaknesses um, to like, and, and are comfortable with them or super confident in them. Um, so I only try to put myself in situations where I'm like playing to my own strengths. Right. Because we can focus on the weaknesses till the cows come home. Yeah. And what does think broad mean to you? To me, it means dream big, be a winner. Like that, that's like the quickest thing that when, when I saw that on the sheet, I think it means dream big. Um, don't limit yourself at all. And um, if you can't picture something, then like no one's going to make it happen for you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so yeah, much. thank you. Lots of fun. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike and grow the Broad Mike community. Broad Mike is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think Broad.